from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. You know, I basically just want what his family wanted, and that's been how I've um, undertaken this whole process. You know, I did this for them. And after he died, I talked to a lot of his friends about it, and they said he basically wanted to hide everything that was bad in his life from me. You know, he cared about what I thought about him. And so what people told me over and over, especially people who were particularly vulnerable, was that they wished that the, you know, there were more police, the police were more active. You write, quote, I began losing confidence in the everyday tasks of raising my own boys. If I couldn't take care of Jarrell, what made me so sure I could take care of them? I'm Sarah Fenske. In 2005, Ben Westhoff became a mentor with Big Brothers Big Sisters in St. Louis. He was paired with a tiny eight-year-old with a, quote, gigawatt smile. That little boy was Jarrell Cleveland, and he and Ben developed a very real friendship that continued, even as Ben left St. Louis for New York City and then Los Angeles and ultimately back to St. Louis again. But two years after Ben moved back to St. Louis for good in the summer of 2016, Jorel was murdered. He was 19 years old. And Ben's attempt to process his guilt and grief and also to find Jorel's killer is the subject of his new book, Little Brother, Love, Tragedy, and My Search for the Truth. And Ben Westhoff joins us today to tell us about it. Ben, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Sarah. So, Ben, take us back to 2005. What were you doing in St. Louis when you decided, you know what, I think I could mentor a a young child? I was a graduate of WashU and a staff writer at the Riverfront Times, and I wanted to be part of a public service program where I could actually make a difference. I'd been to like Habitat for Humanity and volunteered at soup kitchens and it always felt like they had more than enough volunteers. And But at Big Brothers Big Sisters, they had a real pressing need. It was clear, especially for male mentors. And so I was paired almost immediately with Jarrell and uh, it was kind of like being thrown in the deep end. You know, this was long before I had children of my own. Yeah. And I couldn't believe they just trusted me to like hang out with this kid and mentor him. Yeah, when you got to know Jarrell, he was living in Forest Park Southeast, what's now called The Grove. What was that neighborhood like at the time? What was his living situation like? He lived in a really crowded household in a very dangerous neighborhood. Like um, one time his dog got off the leash and the police shot it and his bike was stolen. And this was kind of pre-gentrification, The Grove. And so, you know, I lived in the Central West End, which was just a mile away. Yeah. And yet, you know, my neighborhood was super safe and fancy. And it was just the stark inequalities of St. Louis came into clear focus. How did Jarrell do with that? I mean, you describe a living situation that, as I'm reading about this, it's like he's sleeping on a bare mattress. There's a broken window that, that never did get fixed. Was he aware that right around the corner there's there's million-dollar mansions? Yeah, I brought him to my high rise and um, we had like a swimming pool. And I think he, you know, I think he enjoyed it. I think we really learned a lot about each other's experiences. But ultimately, we bonded, you know, it seemed like we had more in common than not. And uh, I took him to Cardinals games and 
restaurants and we bonded a lot over hip hop music. You know, he was really into, he introduced me to a lot of rappers that I later wrote about. This helped your journalism career. It it sure did. Yeah. And he was amazed when I would interview these people, these stars that he only, you know, could read about. So his family moved to Ferguson. And at the time you thought this was going to be a really good thing. I mean, this was a much better living situation initially. Right. You know, his neighborhood in St. Louis was so dangerous. You know, they were going to the suburbs. I was like, well, you know, it's it's got to be safe. Right. Um, but it the neighborhood sort of got more and more dangerous during his time there. And um, I sort of watched a lot of things go downhill. How so? Well, there were all sorts of incidents of shootings on his block. And um, it all kind of culminated when he was in high school and he was getting off the bus one day and someone started shooting at him. And uh, he said, as he described it to me, he like pulled a girl out of the way and, you know, kind of and got to safety. But I, I actually ended up speaking with the principal and then I saw the police report and it turned out the story was more complicated than that. Yeah. And it turned out maybe that he was hiding some stuff from you. I mean, you guys had a good relationship. But you began to realize sort of the extent that he was living this life that that he didn't want you to see. Yeah. And after he died, I talked to a lot of his friends about it. And they said he basically wanted to hide everything that was bad in his life from me. You know, he cared about what I thought about him. And so to me, you know, I'd say, how's school? And he would say, great. I'd say, how's your family? How are your friends? He'd say, great. But it wasn't until much later that I realized there was so much more going on beneath the surface. Yeah, and the school situation was very frustrating in a way. And you sort of detail, you basically found out he was not on track to graduate. This was news to you. And, and Jarrell also had a, had, had a very involved father who was paying close attention to things. This was news to him. Yeah, Jarrell's dad was raising 10 kids, basically. And... Um, and I got to go to his parent-teacher conferences uh, one year, and he he had been transferred out of McClure to the special school district, the Mark Twain School in Florissant. And I thought he was, you know, he was a second semester senior, and I thought he was prepared to graduate. But his English teacher told me that he actually only had about half of his credits, and he was nowhere near graduating. That's when things really started dawning on me that he had some serious problems in his life. And That combined with there was another shooting on his block. His dad actually got shot um, by one of Jarrell's former best friends. And at that point, you know, my wife and I did kind of an intervention. And we started having Jarrell over at our house uh, for extended weekends. And then the idea was maybe we were going to try to ask him to move in with us. Mm -hmm. But that ended up not working out either. And what we learn in this book, which is kind of heartbreaking, um, he posted on Facebook something about how it was just kind of boring being at your house. Yeah. That had to have been hard <laughs> to deal with. I mean, it's so understandable that he would feel that way. Yeah. And I can understand it. My feelings weren't hurt, but, you know, he missed his friends, his girlfriend, and he didn't have a car. Mm-hmm. He didn't even have a cell phone. And so I could understand how he wouldn't want to hang out with some old fuddy-duddies, you know. A couple like, kids, Like me you and my know? wife, yeah. yeah. So, but, but at the same time, it made it clear that if he, you know, he wasn't going to want to move in with us. And so this kind of left him in a situation that it becomes alarmingly clear to you and to everyone. He was living in a really dangerous situation. He ended up getting murdered and was murdered point-blank range, broad daylight, 
he was this was not accidental. Right. It was not. This was uh, in the summer of 2016, and it was near his home in Ferguson. It was actually in Kinlock. And so when I got the call from his girlfriend's mother, my first thought was like, what is he, you know, what was he doing in Kinlock? And um, but, you know, nobody knew anything. Um, The case went cold. The police didn't really like seem to have any leads. And, you know, I pretty much stuck my head in the sand. I was like, well, you know, Jarrell was such a great kid. Everyone loved him. This must have been an accident. It must have been random. He must have gotten caught in a crossfire or something. And so for years after that, that was sort of my assumption. What pulled you in to saying, I I need to find out what happened. I'm going to take this deeper look. I had gotten more serious about doing investigative journalism at that point. And I had uh, looked at murders. I'd looked at criminality, drug trafficking, things like that. And it started to become clear that most people who are murdered actually know the people who kill them. You know, when it's something like a burglary, that's a different case. But this was not a burglary. You know, he actually had money on him when he was killed that wasn't taken. And so there was also I I wrote an obituary about him in the Riverfront Times. And, you know, all these nice comments below were like, he sounds like a great kid. You know, sorry for your loss. But then at the very bottom, there was someone who claimed to know Jarrell and claimed that he like deserved what he got because he was running in the streets and and you know bringing harm to other people. And when I initially read that, I was like, oh, that's just some troll, you know, mm-hmm. that can't be real. But then later it began dawning on me and I reached out to this person. You tracked down the commenter. Yeah, and her story ended up checking out. We're talking today to Ben Westoff. His new book is Little Brother, Love, Tragedy, and My Search for the Truth. It's about the the child he was paired with through Big Brothers, Big Sisters. Uh, that child grew into a teen, Jarrell Cleveland. Jarrell was murdered in Kinlock as a 19-year-old. Um, once you dug into his death, you really had to come to terms with how badly his life had gotten off track. How hard was that for, you know, this kid you remembered, this kid with this giant smile, this sweet little boy? Yeah, it was really difficult. Um, All this was kind of in the wake of the Michael Brown killing in 2014. And Jarrell had, you know, been part of the protest, part of the looting. Um, And he had this whole other life that I only got small snapshots of. It turned out that he was going to Kinlock a lot, actually, and he was trading guns illegally. Now, I knew his dad was a sportsman, went hunting, Um, But Jarrell, it turns out, was obsessed with guns. He wanted to own his own gun store. And he would, you know, he couldn't legally own a gun, but he paid just a small amount of money for these cheap guns and then kind of traded up the ladder, gave some more money. And not only that, but even more devastating was to find out he was really involved with with bad drugs. and Drugs like heroin. He'd been taking heroin, yeah. So you write about how hard it was to process all this, this young man that you spent a lot of time with that you knew so well. You write, quote, I began losing confidence in the everyday tasks of raising my own boys. If I couldn't take care of Jarrell, what made me so sure I could take care of them? How did you deal with those feelings? That, yeah, that, it was very hard. I mean, Jarrell came and lived with us, my wife and I, when we lived in New Jersey for one summer. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I couldn't find the cough button. Um, and um, um, and it was kind of like a trial run for having our own kids in a way. You know, he was there with us all summer sleeping on the couch. And uh, I um, was trying my best, you know, but it was clear after he died. 
sorry, I'm getting a little choked up here, um, that maybe my best was just not good enough. And um, I had young kids at the time, and we we really didn't live all that far from mm-hmm. where Jarrell lived. And um, it just uh, kind of sunk my confidence in parenting generally. And yet part of what came through so clearly in this book, you didn't just end up investigating Jarrell's death. You ended up really investigating what conditions are like for people living in um, broad swaths of North St. Louis County. And it's so clear that your boys aren't going to be confronted by so much of what Jarrell was dealing with. There's so much privilege, as, as you acknowledge in this book, in your whole family lineage, all these advantages for these white kids in a really good school district versus just a mile or so, two miles down the road, a completely different life experience for Jarrell. Is that hard to deal with? Are there any answers as we look at somebody like Jarrell and where everything went so horribly wrong? Yeah, it, it started really from the time we both arrived in St. Louis. Like, we're both outsiders. I'm from Minnesota, and Jarrell's family is from Arkansas. And yet, when we moved here, I ended up in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods. He ended up in one of the poorest. And um, it, into our more, you know, later years, he moved, his family moved to Ferguson. And, you know, this book is in large measure about North County mm-hmm. in a big way. And North County has been undergoing this sort of incredible demographic transformation in recent decades from mostly white to mostly black. And when it came to Ferguson, um, there, there, the, the residents were mostly black, but the people in power were still mostly white, you know, the, the mayor, the police, uh, the city council people. And so Jarrell was kind of caught up in a situation that was untenable from the start. Mm-hmm. And I looked into the history, you know, why did so, so many African-Americans moved to Ferguson and, and, you know, places like Jennings, Spanish Lake. And the answer is that the more Tony suburbs, you know, West County suburbs, places like that, they didn't have specific segregation laws, but they had, you know, they had no affordable housing, you know, no multifamily housing. And so basically that's how, you know, segregation happens in, in real time. Mm-hmm. And so many people who are focused on the problems in North County focus on issues of, of police brutality, um, oppressive policing. That doesn't seem to have been a, a huge part of Jarrell's individual experience. This seems like it was about a lack of prospects and, and poverty and, and violence all around him. You almost suggest, I mean, you do suggest that his little part of the world almost needed more policing. That seems to fly in the face of, of what a lot of people um, who've looked at these problems have concluded. Yeah, well, you know, I what I did for this book was just talk to everybody, you know, especially people living in North County and Ferguson and Kinlock. And um, what people told me over and over, especially people who are particularly vulnerable, was that they wished that, the you know, there were more police, the police were more active. And... Um, it's impossible to know, you know, how, you know, how and why things played out in Jarrell's case, but he definitely uh, needed more guidance. He needed, you know, I blame the schools in a large part. You know, he had teachers who were basically, I said, how's Jarrell doing? And one of his science teachers was like, he's doing great. He never says anything. He just sits back there and is oh. polite and quiet. And, um, you know, I think too often just ignoring these situations, the way people are raised, whether it's the police, the teachers, whatever, it's just 
makes the situation worse. Yeah. I mean, it's such a heartbreaking book. Um, and seeing what happened to Jarrell is so heartbreaking. Um, and then you find, it seems pretty likely to me, that you figured out who killed Jarrell. And normally in a true crime kind of book, that's, okay, that's where we can all feel good again. Somebody's being brought to justice. You seem to have had even really mixed feelings about figuring out who this person is. It's just part of this whole cycle of violence. Would apprehending this killer even do anything? Yeah. You know, it. Jarrell's family wanted to know who did this and why, and mm -hmm. the police did not bring them that answer. And so I felt um, glad to be able to do that for for them. But the thing is, Jarrell was not entirely innocent, you know. This person who killed him felt very threatened by Jarrell himself. And so I put myself in the killer's situation and said, well, if I, if someone was threatening me, threatening my family, what would I do? And um, these were all questions that really had to be grappled with. Yeah. I mean, do you hope that an arrest comes out of this book or are your feelings more complicated? Well, it's... It's almost certainly not going to happen because there was a witness and the witness is refusing to testify. And so that's just um, the reality. Um, as for, uh, you know, I basically just want what his family wanted. And that's been how I've um, undertaken this whole process. You know, I did this for them and they they wanted answers, but they didn't necessarily need someone to be thrown in prison. And so they have those answers at this point. Yeah. So in our final minute here, as you think about Jarrell's life and think about everything that went into this book, what do you want to leave us with today? I think it's, you know, St. Louis is so famously segregated and um, it's just people don't know how the other half lives. And to me, that's the biggest problem. You know, it's so easy. You hear about these murders on the news and little one minute, two minute segments. It's so easy just to think that's how life is. There's nothing we can do about it. It's always been this way. It's always going to be this way. But the more you actually know about places like North County, you know, if you're if you're not from there, um, learning about the whole diverse population of St. Louis, the more educated you are, you start to see that things really can be done. There just has to be the will to do it. Well, Ben Westoff, I want to thank you so much for joining us today, and, and I'm so very sorry for your loss. Thank you, Sarah. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering by Aaron Dorr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. This episode was mixed and edited by Avery. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.